like to hear the bubble cheers and play the characters that you cheer. So join us as we go, 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 below the frame. Today on Below the Frame, we're talking with Sesame Street Muppet performer Pam Arciero. Pammy plays Grungetta and so many others on Sesame Street and a lot of other shows. And she talks about growing up in Hawaii, her big audition for Sesame Street, Richard Hunt, paying it forward, and so much more. We're also going to be talking about right hands. So don't draw attention to yourself. It's time to go Below the Frame. Go, 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 Below the Frame. Welcome to Below the Frame. Uh, here is where you will hear from actual Sesame Street and Disney Muppet performers and others in that universe of very creative and very talented people. And we're also going to give you tips and helpful hints if you think that you know being a Muppet performer is what you want to be when you grow up, no matter what age you happen to be. Uh, my name is Matt Vogel, and I am your host. I work as both a Sesame Street and a Disney Muppet performer, and I am happy, so happy to report that it is a dream come true. I I never thought, when I was a kid, I never thought when I was watching Sesame Street and The Muppet Show that I would one day be performing alongside my heroes. And I started out in the beginning, when I first got to Sesame Street, like, like all of us do, as a right-hand performer. And we're going to go into that quite a bit today in this episode because we are talking with one of the masters of right-hand performing Pam Arciero. But, but Pam has also performed so many other characters on a bunch of different shows, including Grungetta on Sesame Street. And we are going to talk about all of that right now, assuming you're ready. Because I'm ready. You ready? We're ready? Okay, great. So let's go below the frame with Pam Arciero. Sierra, hello, my friend. Thank hello. you for being on Below the Frame. Of course, well, I'm lovely to be here as always, Matt Vogel. Yeah, well, you know, you have <laughs> been you've been in the business, professionally speaking, for uh, about forty years. I'm guessing, is that correct? Yes, Something correct. Like that? About forty. Well, almost we, forty. Yeah. Yeah, we're gonna get to all of that and more right now. So, are you ready? <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> all right. We're gonna start at the beginning. Just tell me a little bit about growing up. You grew up in Hawaii. Correct. Right? Um, I was born and raised in outside Honolulu in um, mm-hmm. a little valley called Ainahaina. And um, I'm sorry. Went, say the name again. Ainahaina. <laughs> okay. I'm not gonna. <laughs> it sounds lovely. <laughs> Nothing could be finer <laughs> than to be in Ainahaina. Um. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, uh, you know, first of all, I gotta say to say that you grew up in Hawaii is uh, amazing. Yeah. Um, is it as it, beautiful as? Absolutely. <laughs> it is an amazingly wonderful place to grow up. Um, you know, I spent a lot of my school years going to the beach instead of the oh, man. school. I would, we would play hooky and go body surfing. I yeah, mean, why wouldn't you? You know, you have to. <laughs> um, it was quite idyllic. I mean, it was much less crowded. It's crowded now, so it's not as much fun for me when I go back. But growing mm. up, it was just the best. I mean, it was sunny and warm and everywhere you go, I grew up always seeing water. Like every place you Mm. drive, you always, the ocean is on one side and the mountains are on the other. And every place I would go, I always saw the ocean. And the most shocking thing for me moving to Connecticut was that you don't see water all the time. (laughs) That's right. It's not an everyday (laughs) thing. I didn't even know where I was. Like my, my directions are oriented between the mountains Uh and the ocean. And in Hawaii, they call it Malka and Makai. We don't have east, west, north, south. We have Malka, Makai, Eva Beach, and Diamond Head are our directions because the island isn't 
you know, so that's the way wow. I grew up. I grew up seeing water always. And so a real shock was to come to the East Coast and, and be basically what I felt was landlocked. I haven't gone to Kansas City now where you're from. That's oh, that really is landlocked. landlocked. Yeah, I but, grew up in a place where there was no water around me. So everywhere I looked, I knew exactly the directions because I could, <laughs> I could tell from the sun, I guess. I don't know. Tell me a little bit about your family. Um, I was one of five kids. I'm mm-hmm. the second to the youngest. And my father and mother met during World War II. My father came to Hawaii uh, just before Pearl Harbor. My grandfather was arrested during Pearl Harbor. Um, I am Japanese, Hawaiian, Italian, and English. And actually, you know, thanks to the DNA, ancestry and all that now, I found out that I'm actually, the most I am is Japanese of all the ethnic groups that I'm mixed up in. Um, I'm about 23% Japanese, which is pretty amazing. Yeah. Because I thought, you know, I was a lot more Hawaiian than I am than other things. (laughs) Italian, I'm not as much Italian. Not as much. So what happened was my grandfather was a single guy, my, my grandmother had died uh, a long time before, and he was driving past Pearl Harbor. He's half Japanese. Mm-hmm. And they snag him because it just, it just after it happened, it was going on while he was driving home from his girlfriend's back to my mother's house. Oh. <laughs> and and um, they arrested him, and my dad had to go get him out of uh, jail, basically, oh, and boy. prove that he was an American citizen because he was born and raised in Hawaii. And oh. as being born in Hawaii, you were considered an American citizen since uh, yeah. the U.S. took it over in 1854. But they had to that, convince my your dad. dad had my to dad, convince. fortunately, was an Italian from the East Coast. Okay. <laughs> they believed that if they he's claiming him. this Japanese guy is not a Japanese spy, that he's not. It's good Japanese. enough for them. What are the things that you did as a kid? You know, I know you went to the beach a lot when you were in school. Probably, I'm guessing that was maybe yeah, high school yeah. years. But school. as a little kid, what were you doing? You know, the the second yeah. youngest. What were you doing? What kind of things were you doing? Well, I was always very. I loved dancing, and um, we, you know, Hawaii music and dance are very big. And I'm, you know, every family party has people playing music and singing <laughs> and dancing. And so um, I was in ballet from an extremely young age, and that's what I did. And hula, you, everybody takes hula. And, you know, normal neighborhood things. There was a stream in our backyard. I spent a lot of time catching fish and doing stupid, weird things. <laughs> <laughs> my mother would bring home stray animals. I always would pick up stray animals and drive my mother insane. And when just, you were a kid, did you have any aspirations for to being in the arts? I mean, as, as you yeah, said, you were yeah, ballet. I, you were doing right, ballet. I wanted to be a ballet dancer big time. And, in fact, my undergraduate degree from the University of Hawaii is in dance. And I was extremely outgoing, surprisingly speaking. So, and it's kind of funny when you grow up in Hawaii, my neighborhood was all Japanese mm-hmm. families and a couple of Hawaiian families, and, but mostly Japanese. And in school, Japanese students didn't speak out loud. And so I was the really big mouth in class. And I would be sent to the principal all the time oh, no. for speaking out so much. But seriously, um, you know, if you ask a a classroom full of 18 Japanese kids and two Hawaiians and this one Hapa Haole, which is what I was called because I was a mix. The only ones who answers the questions are the Hapa Haoles and the, and the, <laughs> the Hawaiians. And so it was very interesting. And the theory about that, it, it's a cultural thing because mm-hmm. um, the theory with Japanese culture is you don't want to be the nail sticking up from the wood because you will get the hammer. So uh-huh. you don't want to stand out. You want to be level. 
to be unseen. Um, yeah, so it was very interesting. So because of that, my naturally outgoing nature, and in a situation where I was the only one doing it, I was always the kid doing the neighborhood plays, <laughs> hanging up the script, come on over, <laughs> you guys sit there. You know, so not you were the entertainer. I, I was the entertainer. I ran around doing stupid, entertaining things for the other kids. And is that what, <laughs> is that what you did? Then you went to college to to, to be a dancer. Yes. Um, well, yeah, I went to the university with the intention of of getting the dance degree. Well, I went in with sort of drama too because I liked acting, singing, dancing, and I was singing a lot in high school. I I sang a ton. I played. You know, coffee shops and bars played guitar and sang in those areas. So, oh. you know, the thing with puppetry that's so wonderful is that it was everything that I liked to do. Yeah. Because I was also, um, I like to make stuff. I like to make things. I would make little sculptures. And making puppets was a joy for me when I discovered it because it was all my skill sets. I, w- I had done a lot of sculpture and ceramics. I was actually doing a lot of art. The art I did was mostly 3D. And, well, how um, did you discover puppetry and that, oh, I like to make puppets? Well, I actually was in dance and I was doing a, a creative movement company. I, ran a, I ran, worked in a creative movement company where we'd go to schools and do creative movement shows with kids and get them up and dancing and teaching them that movement is a good for them, that kind of stuff. Yeah. And then this man named Kermit Love who uh-huh. built the original Big Bird, was yes. coming to teach a summer puppetry class. And so the people I was in the movement company with um, said, you got to take this class with us. We're going to take puppetry. Take the class with us. And I went, well, okay. And I was finishing, I was probably in my junior, end of my junior year of college when he came that first summer and going into my senior year. And he came and here was this amazing man He's, of course, from the East Coast. With, in Hawaii, you know, you always, it's kind of like your second-tier American. Uh-huh. So to have this whole big, fancy New York guy <laughs> come and teach us was huge. Yeah. And so we were all in the class, very excited. And then he turns out to be this amazing, weird, extremely wonderful person for me. Mm-hmm. Kermit has got a very, very reputation. Right, yes. But for me, he, he just opened up my eyes to this art form that could be dancing, could be singing, could be acting, and could be building and making, creating puppets. And there, there's whole universe opened. And I knew at that very moment, after working with Kermit for two weeks, that this was what I was going to do for the rest of my life. Oh, wow, really? Yeah. Was it a specific kind of uh, puppetry that he was teaching, or was he teaching all the different kinds of puppetry? He of taught a puppetry, broad just... range. Of course, he was mostly oriented towards the Muppet style, because that's mm-hmm. kind of what was happening at the time, and that's what he was working in. You know, he was working for Sesame Street, building the Snuffleupagus, building yeah. Big Birds. Um, he was making the big puppets, and he was making lip-sync-style puppets as well. So it was kind of out of that. We did a show. Every, he came for two summers, um, and we did a show at the end of every summer that had all kinds of puppets in it and all of, a, all of us performing with him. Um, mm-hmm. And it was really quite a joy. And interestingly enough, his partner, Christopher Lyle, came and taught ballet, which I was also taking. So I studied oh. with both of them, which is uh-huh. kind of a, a fun event for us all in uh, Hawaii now, at the time. You mentioned that Kermit was already working uh, on Sesame Street and building Snuffy and Big Bird. Were you aware of Sesame Street? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I had been babysitting as part of my income, nannying uh, mm-hmm. in college. 
and um, and babysitting from a fairly young age. And I think Sesame went on air when I was like 13, 12 or 13. So I was aware of it. But as you, be, you know, that's how I became aware. And then once I saw it, I mean, I cannot tell you how many times I would march children around the kitchen singing Sia's for cookies just, <laughs> just to get them tired out. Right, Too right. many circles of Sia's cookies. Sia's <laughs> yeah. for cookie. Um, and I loved them. They were beautiful and wonderful and amazing. And so that was part of the mystique, too. Not only was there mm-hmm. was this big New York guy, but he was working for this really famous puppet show. And that was very exciting. And then he also brought, at that point, Carol Spinney came during one of those sessions. And uh, he would do these live concerts. Carol, Big Bird would go out with the symphonies. Yeah. And he would sing songs and he would direct the symphony. And so he was doing the one there in Hawaii at a place called The Shell, which is this beautiful outdoor arena kind of thing. And so Kermit said, come on down. And so I went and was backstage. It was big to do and hanging out with Carol and Debbie. And I was driving them around, actually. I ended up being their kind of chauffeur. Um, So we had a great time. And I think some of you might have heard the story about me saying, Carol, saying to me, well, why don't you come to New York? We could use someone like you. And me going, what? And Debbie going, yeah, let me talk to Jim about it. It'll be fine. <laughs> so, it wasn't quite that, that It wasn't direct. that easy. It wasn't but, that direct. But the intention was probably very pure and from the heart. And very encouraging. So what did you think? Did you think, well, okay, I will try. Or did you I have thought, business well, to do in Hawaii that you needed to? I of- wanted to finish my degree, which yeah. I did, my undergraduate degree. Um, so I had things to do there to finish up. And then in thinking about it, my mother said, you're going to play with dolls. And I said, well, yeah. And she said, okay, honey, but learn to type, please, so you can have a job. Practical. That was my mother's experience of the world for yes. women was that you better know how to type well, which I, I of course, refused to learn to do. So, <laughs> yeah. I'm okay now because everybody is. But, That's um, right. So then... They said, well, you can go to New York if you, or why don't you go to graduate school and then go to New York? I said, okay, I'm getting, going to graduate school in puppetry then. And mm. she said, oh. And there were two <laughs> places I could go. One was UCLA and the other was University of Connecticut. UCLA had a program that was mostly Asian style puppets. And I was mm-hmm. obviously, after meeting Kermit, in love with the, the Muppet style. Now, right. University of Connecticut was more marionette than any other style, not really quite Muppet style yet either. But so I went to the University of Connecticut and got my graduate degree, and I would go down to New York back and forth, um, visiting Kermit, seeing Carol, doing different stuff like that during that time while I was finishing my degree. And where did you, when you were in Connecticut, did you live in, on campus? Yeah, I initially, um, I eventually moved out of the campus and in stores in Ashford, Connecticut, up Mm -hmm. there, which is that surrounding area. And I met my husband, and uh, we got married, and we've been married ever since. What year was that? When did you meet Steve? I got married and we met in 1979, Uh and I got married in 1980. So we're coming up on our 40th anniversary this year. Congratulations. That's awesome. Which is shocking. I don't know how I got this old. But okay, it um, happens. <laughs> it happens very quickly, doesn't it? It's just it goes really stupid. Out. <laughs> Suddenly, you're old. I know. And um, now here you. And now here I come in and talk. <laughs> tell you, make you talk about your entire life. <laughs> All right. So you are a student at uh, University of Connecticut, 
and you are going into New York City to learn a little bit from Kermit yeah. Love, yeah. and you know that you want to be a puppeteer, or you want your life to be in puppetry, right. and you were built, still building puppets and still... Oh, yeah, because that's the degree at University of Connecticut it was, and still is, very thorough. You build all forms of puppets. You perform in all forms of puppets. I actually performed with the University of Connecticut at um, the Kennedy Center during wow. the UNUMA World Congress in 1980, and that was a rod puppet show, and I was Brunhilde in the Ring of the Nibelung. You know, so we did all kinds of things. We did marionettes. We did shadow puppets. We did everything. And then I was going back and forth and trying to learn from Kermit. And I spent a lot of time watching on the set of Sesame Street. I had met Jim and um, Frank and all the Muppet guys at various uh, puppet festivals, as well as eventually they had an open call audition for people. And yep. that's where I met Marty Robinson. He yeah. and this I, is in uh, 1980, 81? 80, 81, yeah. And I was just finishing graduate school, so I went to this big audition, and they were basically looking for a new Snuffy. But and you didn't know this at first, did you? No, no, no. We just thought they were, I mean, and maybe they were considering putting a woman in, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, but they, but so we just went and went, and they eliminated a bunch of folks. And eventually, just before you go, I mean, there, this just popped into my head. There weren't very many female Muppet performers at this point. I mean, Fran no. was there, and... And Jane, Fran, of course. And Jane had stopped performing. Fran was basically the only one that was consistent. And she was acting a lot. So she wasn't puppeteering full-time on Sesame. Right. And then, um, of course, you she, had you had Louise in, in, in London. London. Yeah. But that, there weren't very many anyway. Most of the women were only in for one season and then sort of didn't come back. Because, as you know, it's a very hard job and it takes a very special person to persevere in those situations. Yeah. And so there was a number of women who came and went, but, and Franny would come in just for inserts, which was mm-hmm. maybe six days a year. And so there weren't a lot of women. And, and actually what they said to me at the end of the audition, eventually when there was just a, how many of us, there was probably 12 of us left after starting with maybe 50. Right. Um, then they said, well, keep going. And Marty and I played off each other and had a great time and really liked each other. Mm-hmm. And they said, we're not looking for women this year, but uh, we're only looking for Snuffy, but we're going to keep your name. So please um, keep us informed of your contact information. And I thought, oh, okay, well, you know, again, in the circular file that we... <laughs> right, right. You just kind of thought, ah, well, that nice well, try. But... Now that's it, nice try. But I kept hanging out with Kermit and doing other things. And then Marty invited me to work with him on Little Shop of Horrors in yeah. that um, he needed help building and he needed volunteer help building. So I would just go in and help him cut some leaves for vines or whatever when yeah. he was doing the off-Broadway show, just so we could hang out and talk and fool around because we just had fun as performers together. Yeah, really, you and know, he did, he hadn't necessarily been cast at this point either, he was, right? He had or just had he... been cast as Snuffy, and um, Kermit was really hard on him, um, getting him up to up to snuff on Snuffy. Yep. Um, and and Brian Meal had not left yet; he was just right. doing Snuffy. So Brian was still doing all the characters that Brian was doing. And th- those characters are Telly and and Grangetta, Grangetta and, uh, and uh, Nobel Price right. and Alphabet Bates. I mean, there's a whole bunch of those. He had about six characters yeah. that when he left, and he was doing Elmo. So he had six or seven characters that were on all the time that needed to be replaced when he left because. He's an amazing performer. Yeah. <laughs> Who doesn't want to perform? I know. Have you? <laughs> yeah. Uh, Brian Meals. 
Oh, I love Brian Mayo. I do too. He's, yeah. he's a wonderful guy. Um, oh, yes. So what happened was that Marty went into Snuffy and then he got Little Shop. Mm-hmm. So he was doing Snuffy for like oh, a, right. half a season. And I had went down once or twice to see him doing Snuffy and with Kermit and was observing. I did a lot of observing at that time. I would just go in and watch the shooting because there is no way to learn what we do, really, unless you're you on really that need set. To sit and watch. You just need to sit and watch. And that's what Kermit would always tell me. Just observe, see what they're doing, figure out what everybody does. And that's what you do. You figure out, what is that guy doing? Oh, he's a cameraman. What? Well, who's the guy standing next to him? Oh, he's a lighting guy, right? You have to, yeah. all that stuff. All those people, what they do and how you interact with them. And really, you learn etiquette that way, too. That's right? true. You watch everybody on the, on the crew and how they interact with each other. Yeah, and it, that just takes time and that takes paying attention. And then you also learn about the techniques like Richard Hunt's fabulous doing the crossword puzzle until the moment the camera rolls. <laughs> <laughs> or reading the paper. You that, know, he was more reading the paper. Crossword yeah. was Jerry. That's a that's a high skill level. You can be reading the New York Times on during the countdown. Five, four, three, two. Put your arm up and go. That's what he did. He was always <laughs> doing that. It would and it drove the directors insane. I think he did it in, on purpose. But <laughs> Richard could pull it out of his butt. Most people can't. You yeah. know, it was Richard. Richard yeah, was, was an Richard. amazing special special performer. <laughs> did you? How, how close were you with Richard? Very. Um, yeah. I adored Richard. He was just tons of fun. He was, um, it was heartbreaking. I just, I can't believe we lost him ever. I still mourn his passing every day yeah. that I think of him. I just, he, he was kind and crazy and, and truthful in a time when lots of people weren't necessarily being so truthful yeah. about what was going on out there, particularly in terms of uh, human rights, gay rights. He was he was really something. He and was, I heard he was very generous. Yes. What would he do? <laughs> because um, I've heard of his generosity. Yeah. G- Richard loved to pick up checks. That was his thing. The reality was he felt so lucky to have the job he had. And he was such a generous man hmm. that he would never let any of us pick up a check. We would work and scheme to, to get those checks, and he would always, always, always have already paid for it when you sat down. He's already paid the bill. And we'd go to these kind of fancy restaurants around. Uh-huh. Um, we were at 55th Street then, 9th and 55th, and mm-hmm. there were lots of nice, you know, midtown restaurants we'd go for lunch. And we would just argue them to the ground. So finally, I started calling ahead one day. Oh. I called ahead, gave them my credit card number, which in those days, nobody did. You have to realize right. this is 35, 30 years ago. Nobody did that. And so we walked in and we sat down and Richard says, here's my card. And he goes, it's already paid for it. And I said, oh, no, man. how did you do that? <laughs> That's possible. That's my job. <laughs> it was just terrible. But uh, what it taught me was to pay it forward. And so I, yeah. I, younger puppeteers, and he knew we didn't have the money. We weren't making money that he was making. And so I always, I always take younger puppeteers out to lunch. I always try to repay the same thing that Richard did for me with, with you know, that pay it forward with younger people who don't have the money, who don't, yeah. who want to go out to lunch with us and hang with us, but really can't afford it. That is part of it. It's the being off the set too. It's not right. just the learning and the observing Right. That you're talking about on the set and what does that guy do? What does that guy do? But what does this guy do when we all go out to lunch? Right. And h- how does that, how does that affect me? And how can I pay that forward one day? 
Right. And, yeah. and uh, you know, it's a camaraderie that is so unique to what we do, that, that closeness, that community, because what we do is so odd. It's not like you can walk out and find another puppeteer the two blocks over who's been working, you know, through lunch too. Right. It's, it's a unique job. It's a unique way and societal, our own culture. We have such an interesting culture yeah. in terms of being puppeteers. Well, you know? well, I want to talk about that specifically, at least in terms of you actually going from observing on Sesame Street to performing on Sesame Street. How did that happen? Well, I observed occasionally John Stone would call me in to do a right hand. He'd throw me in even though I wasn't being paid, just to give, let me try. Wow. Let me try. And then, and I think he did that with Carmen too. I remember mm-hmm. he did that with Carmen because Carmen, we had, Carmen couldn't really be hired at that time. Right. Uh, because she didn't have the right paperwork. And Carmen came in about five years after me, maybe six years mm-hmm. after me. But they had a large oh, open call again. That was my second time in uh, auditioning. And they called me back, sure enough. And they said, please come. And they started with about 300 people. Wow. And we had um, what they called workshops mm-hmm. once a week. There'd be a three or four hour workshop. There'd be a, like an hour and a half. And then we'd have a half hour break and then another hour and a half. And it was basically Richard and Jane Henson, Richard Hunt and Jane Henson teaching us the puppeteer and how you do it. And they had a camera set up. Wow. And again, in those days, people didn't have cameras, didn't have the access that we have now. You just couldn't get yourself on camera. So you had to be in that room and doing it and learning on the fly. There was no place to practice. I did eventually, I think I bought a camera system and it was like $6,000, which oh back gosh. then was everything I had right. to buy this camera to rehearse with. And that did help. But it was very rare that you would have an at-home system that worked. And it was very different than what the three camera shoot was anyway. You know, once you hit three cameras, it's much different than just having your one little camera, as you know. So we started. So once a week we went in and they wouldn't tell you. They just say, thank you. And we'll call you. So you didn't know if you were cut. (laughs) If you made it until you, until you were called again. Right. The following Monday or Tuesday, they would call you and say, please show up on Thursday or Friday, whatever it was. So you'd wait the weekend, not knowing if you'd been cut yet. And we went for four months that way and eventually ended up with two of us. Two out of 300. And who was this? It was you? Camille Bernara. They were looking for Grangetta. So Camille and I were down to it. And I walked into the room and this goes with my classic I, some of you may have heard the story. I, it was, I knew it was the final big audition. I didn't know how many people were left, but I knew mm-hmm. it was not because the week before there were maybe 10 or 12 people. So I knew it was down. I knew it was coming down to the final. And I'm walking down the street and I'm nervous and I'm thinking, wow, I wonder if this is it. I wonder if I'm going to cast. And I'm having a bad hair day and I'm feeling overweight. And I'm like just such high anxiety walking into the place. And this homeless person looks up at me and he goes, hey, Miss Piggy, you lose your hairbrush? And I thought, oh my God, the whole world knows. world knows that I am not going to make this. Anyway, high stress. I walk in the room and there is John Stone, Dulcie Singer, Lisa Simon. John Stone was, for those of you who don't know, was the original developer of Sesame Street, writer and director. Dulcie Singer was the executive producer. Lisa Simon was associate producer, executive producer. Uh, Jim Henson and Jane Henson were in the room. That's who I walked into audition for. So not a bunch of slouches. Yeah, just, you know, a few folk who, yeah. <laughs> just um, a couple of they, folks. Yeah. No, no stress. 
not nothing. Uh. And so they were really looking for Grangetta. And fortunately, I really knew Grangetta. I, I think it was so close between me and Camille because Camille's an excellent and wonderful performer. And she did eventually, as you know, become part of the cast. But she didn't know Grangetta as well as I did, like her personality and character. Why do you feel like you knew Grangetta? Because I studied her. Oh, you because did? Oh, I, you just... I really put in the time because I just knew that I knew enough to know that because Brian Meal was leaving, what are the characters that are going to be available? I and heard you that. watched him. I'm guessing you were there on set and you got to and see I watched him on him. set and I, and I watched the shows to find her. So I just knew her really well. And so I think that's what's the leg up. So I do the audition and I'm very scared. And I walk out the door and I just go, oh, God, they're not going to say anything. I'm not going to know. Oh, this is horrible. Uh, and then Dulcie says to me, wait a minute, Pam, what are, you're, le- you're, 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 you're leaving now, right? And I said, yeah. And she said, I said, she said, well, thank you very much. And we'll see you in September. And I went, wait, what? <laughs> what do you mean you'll see me in September? She goes, well, we'd like you to do it on the show. Just, just go ahead. We'll let you know. You'll come in in September and you'll do her on the show. And that's how I was told I was oh on Sesame gosh. Street. <laughs> and it was like, okay. So I'm floating down the street looking for the homeless guy to say, hey, Miss Piggy got it. <laughs> what year was this? When was this around? 82, 83. So that September, you find yourself on Sesame Street. The first day you came in, were you performing Gonjetta? No, the first day I came in, actually, Kevin Clash was also hired that same year. We mm-hmm. were hired the same year. Kevin had been on the show a couple of years before, but he had left to go do Captain Kangaroo, I believe it was, mm-hmm. in Philadelphia. And so they rehired him the same year with me. And we did, they gave us some new characters called Crystal and Mario. They're supposed to be a boy and girl playmate kind of thing, mm-hmm. um, which didn't work, wasn't so well written, so it didn't work out. But that's okay. Yeah. But that was the first thing I did was that. And then I was right-handing as well. Brian Neal had left at that time and Marty had gotten telly. And so I did Crystal that day. And then I think I did a right hand for Marty in some scene. And then... And you've been Marty's right hand... Ever since. Ever yeah. since. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it works so well with you and Marty? Again, we really liked performing together. And so... From that initial audition in, mm-hmm. I want to say in 81, we just liked each other and we liked performing together. And this was just a great way for the two of us to continue to consistently perform because there isn't all, you weren't always going to get a character across the other person, but we consistently worked together on telly always, which was just, just so fun. Mm. I love telly, Pam. And uh, you and Marty, you're a fantastic team. Uh, just, just hold on a minute there, Pam. It's, uh, it's time for a word from our sponsor. Excuse me, sir. I wish to file a complaint. Oh? Yes, as you can see, I am a live hand character. Oh, congratulations, sir. You should be very proud. Never mind that. I am unable to experience my live handedness to the fullest. Why is that, sir? What's that? That, sir, is my right arm. As you can see, this arm is dead. Oh, no, eh? It's not dead. It's, it's just resting. Resting? Yeah, these live hands work hard. Grabbing, gripping, pointing, wiggling their little fingies. It's a full-time job, and your right hand's just having himself a little nap. Now look here, sir. When I got onto the set this morning, I found that my right hand had been stuffed and pinned to my chest. Well, that's standard practice, sir. But not when I'm supposed to be playing the guitar in the next scene. Both hands must be engaged, and this particular one is certainly not engaged. It's not resting. It's dead. There's no life in it. It's floppy. Soggy, flaccid, fatigued, 
atrophied. This arm requires an assist. Who is that all? Why, why, why didn't you say so? Here, have this one. He's young and could use the experience. He'll put some life into that arm of yours. Oh, I sure will, sir. I can help you clap and grab things and hold things. Ooh, now you can play guitar in that next scene. I can also help you if you want to hand something to another character. We can count eight with all these fingers we've got. Or if you really want to do something amazing, we can try to juggle. <laughs> what do I do if he gets overzealous like this? All you have to do is grab that hand. Rein that sucker in. He'll get it. Remember, kid, it's not the right hand show. You're here to make him look good, that's all. Don't screw this up. Thank you, sir. This is just what I needed. All right, kid, come on, let's play that guitar. Right hands. They make your little puppet show look a little more real. Uh, that, uh, with a very reverent bow to Monty Python, we'd like to say that's right. Today's episode of Below the Frame is brought to you by Right Hands. Uh, like I said at the top of the show, being a right-hand performer is pretty much what you do when you first come to Sesame Street. And uh, this is the part of the show where I usually, uh, after the word from our sponsor, I usually talk a bit about our topic. But instead of me talking about it, we're just going to pick back up with Pam and talk about that very thing right now. And, and there is a very fine art to be a good right-hand performer. Oh, yes. Right? I mean, it's yeah. just as hard as being the principal performer, I would say, in a lot in of ways. In some but... ways, yeah, yeah. One of the things you have to do is be really keyed into the, 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 the lead performer mm-hmm. because that's your job. Your job is to make that puppet whole, and you have to understand the person who's making that, that character well to, to complete them. And you can't do things that are inappropriate. You have to know the character. You right. can't do anything inappropriate to the character. You don't want to draw attention to yourself. You're the support. You're the main support in so many ways, as yeah. you know. And the skill set is not only being subtle and appropriate, mm-hmm. but you also have to do things like handle props with your other hand that's free right. and yes. hand something up and hold it the right way to camera and make sure that it's not glaring, shooting a glare off or whatever it is, or that it can be seen, or that the lettering is going in the right direction, or that it's not blocking the face or the mouth of the character, or that it's not in the way of the other character on the scene. Or the puppeteer below, even looking at the the monitor. You you have to be so (laughs) aware of yourself and where your body is and how it relates to your partner. Right, and what what they need to do. And you can't, it is such a huge hugely complicated thing to do that no one ever notices. <laughs> I mean, yeah. the public generally When it's never done notice. really well, right. I would say, when it's done uh, with such precision and skill, you might not notice it. I mean, I well, think there are people that go, oh, you mean there's another person that helps out? Yeah, it, it, it should be effortless. It should be, you, you, you know, we are creating characters for people to believe in. Mm-hmm. So that means the whole character. We don't want anyone to think for a moment, oh, look, that hand did that really weird thing. Ooh, I wonder if that was someone else. You yes. don't want that uh, don't uh, want anyone it. to be thinking about that. You want them to think about this whole person, who this whole character is. And your job is to make sure that whatever you do supports that whole character and sells that disbelief, suspension of disbelief, that this is a living, breathing thing. And while you do play characters on both Sesame Street and many other shows that I have a list of here that we'll talk about here in a second, but 
your relationship with Telly, your that assisting job. I mean, you are part of Telly. It feels weird to me when somebody else is, for some reason, playing <laughs> uh, Telly's right hand. Usually, because you know Grunjetta's in the shot. So, oh, right. Pam's yeah. got to do yeah. that. Yeah. Well, now somebody else has to be Telly's right hand. It feels weird to me. <laughs> And I think it feels somewhat weird to Marty. The, the truth is, and we do encourage actually some younger puppeteers to come in and, and do that because yeah. you learn a lot by doing different people's right hands. For Absolutely. And, and you and learn we, a lot about performing by who the lead performer is. And Marty is such a wonderful, specific performer, you know, with so much energy and, and, and so much skill that it's wonderful for someone to have the experience of working with him. You're right. And what's great is that Marty has his energy and in, in the way that he performs and it's every bit as valid as the way that David does it, but he has David's style and it's yeah. every bit as valid as right. Carmen's style and so on and so on. Everybody has their own individual unique style of performance in, in many ways because this is such a complicated and detailed profession that you really do need to learn under all of those principal right. performers so that you can one day put a puppet on your hand and say something with it. Right. Exactly. How long to be even just a good right hand? I think it takes four or five years minimally um, of working and especially under the three camera system. Mm -hmm. You need, it's so hard to get that three camera that it does take more than that often seven or eight years, seasons, I should say, on camera because you have to know, you have to be able to turn with the character without losing a beat when, when they do the camera cut. And he's going to turn to that camera to face it. You better yeah. be with him and not lagging behind because you will blow a shot, blow a whole show by being a right hand. And that's ridiculous. Oh, that's not a good feeling either. It's not a good feeling. And you know <laughs> you don't want to be the one that we're doing it over for, especially exactly. as a right hand. Especially it's, it's, as a right hand. It's one thing if you're the performer and you have the lines and you go right. up on a line, but to be pointing in the wrong direction... <laughs> Right. Or pointing when you're not supposed to point. <laughs> exactly. And they have to redo yeah. the shot. It's uh, terrible. It's it terrifying. And, it does um, take a while. It takes a while. And as you said, everybody has different energy. When you right hand for cookie, I'm, it's actually very, very subtle. More subtle than tally. Mm -hmm. Cookie for me is a very, um, David is a very exacting puppeteer. He is wonderfully uh, precise. Yeah. You know, it's not, Cookie seems like this big, out-of-control guy. He is not. So yeah. when you write hand with David, you have to be precise. You have to you talk with David and see exactly what he wants. Right. Whereas with Telly, for me, mostly because I've done Telly for so many years, I just know where Marty's going to go, sometimes before Marty knows. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I literally know he's going to make that turn, and he doesn't even – it's not conscious on his part. For, for me, I'm – I'm trying to stay one step ahead of him. And I do kind of know his rhythms and his abilities and what he's going to say and how Telly will feel about something and yeah. how that's going to reflect in his head, you know, whatever he's holding or pointing at or gesturing. With. Yeah, um, and it is, it is interesting. They do, everybody does have their own styles that you have to kind of learn so absolutely. that you can mimic and just be able to keep up with them. There's right. nothing you, like a stuck right hand yeah you, you might as well that. stuff it yeah Just stuff it and pin it if it's <laughs> yes, exactly. gonna be the way yeah and it's a mirror process you know i think beginning actors all do mirroring exercises mm -hmm. it is somewhat of a mirror process and a lot actually because you don't want to be higher the left hand should not be the right hand should not be higher than the left hand um, mm -hmm. you don't want to do something that makes the left hand like you said two fingers pointing horrifying right. You know, when you point at something, you never point with two fingers unless you're giving someone a thumbs up. 
right? And and so you <laughs> which know, I do all the time. Yeah, constantly. <laughs> just as a person. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of little things to learn along the way. And I, I am very grateful to you. There have been times when we've had, uh, you know, new people come in. We have mentees on Sesame Street and they are learning from us and they'll come yeah. in and there'll be times when I'll say, Pam, do you mind if I put the mentee in for Telly's sure. writing? You, yeah, yeah. You're always like, yeah, great, good, good, you know, put them in. <laughs> <laughs> let them try. Yeah, let um, them try it. You know, there's a lot of technical things about being a right hand, but for me, one of the key things is um, you obviously never pull down on that arm, even when your arm is tired. Yeah. Because the worst thing you can do to any puppeteer as a right hand is to become a burden and a weight. They should never know you exist as a right hand. And in fact, what I do is I send energy up in the right hand, constantly mm-hmm. lifting up to help support the weight of the other, um, of the lead puppeteer. Yeah, I think puppet. one of our performers has said, you know, oh yeah, I like right-handed because I can just kind of turn my mind off and I don't have to think about anything. Yes, but I think you really do have to pay attention and really do be mindful to everything that's going on. You don't have to say the words, right. but you are kind of putting the emotion of that moment in there and acting along with the principle, yeah. don't you think? Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And you're not driving the scene. You're no. not going to drive the scene, which is what maybe turning your mind off is about. That you don't yeah. have to think about all those connections, but you do have to be there. You have to be so present or you're, you know, again, stuck yeah. in. Who cares? Yeah. You don't complete the character then. You're yeah. just, you know, turning it more into a dolly. And that's the thing that, that something like that, a stiff right hand will make you think, oh yeah, that's a puppet. Right. And you don't even realize why you're thinking that. But yeah. that's, that's what happens. You go, oh, yeah, it's a puppet. And, and that's, it's not that we don't want that, but it, that's not the character. Right. right. It's like we want them to live and breathe and not be a, a wooden thing. Yeah. Well, we can talk about right-handing all day long. Oh, well, yeah, I could. But we, we, we should talk about Grungetta, who okay. you know, we mentioned was played by Brian Meal. And, For one season, you. I might add. Only one season? <laughs> yes. oh, Brian. <laughs> so, I played her for one season and I played her for 38 yeah. or something. <laughs> All right. So who is she? She is a very independent grouch who happens to be emotionally involved with Oscar. <laughs> um, yeah. we, we live separately. I like mm-hmm. to say, I have my own condominium. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and she is... She's a gal of her own mind. She, what I love about her is she always says exactly what she's thinking. She doesn't pull punches. Mm-hmm. Um, she's not rude and she's not mean. She's cranky. She's grouchy. But yeah. she's not rude and she's not mean. And she will tell you exactly what she thinks at any given time. And her whole thing actually has always been recycling. She's been, you know, she recycles her clothes. She right. they love trash. Yeah. Not garbage, trash. Not garbage. Now that that comes from Carol Spinney, does it not? I mean, absolutely. It's a trash can. It's not a garbage can. Right. Um, Why garbage, is trash different than garbage, or what? What's the difference? Would you garbage say garbage is usually wet? Trash is usually drier. Trash is is things like paper and shoes and string and or things you could reuse or uh, reusable things. Recycling yeah. more is what mm-hmm. we call it in this day and age. Right. But that was sort of always a difference. It's not like we are running around in sewage. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. It's like yeah. sometimes people get that. No, 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 no. We don't particularly like wet garbage. That's yeah. not what we like. We that's like trash, thing. which is stuff that's reusable, basically. 
Well, and you've done a ton of Grungetta shows over the years. Mm-hmm. And, and, and is there anything that sticks out to you just like for one reason or another that, that or, or how you shot something or an event that happened in that show that you're like, oh my gosh, this happened and you'll always remember it? Yeah, there's a bunch. Um, <laughs> one of them was Tracy Allman was on the show mm-hmm. and she wanted to play a grouch. And oh. so I gave Tracy Allman grouch diction lessons, which was so much fun teaching her to say, <laughs> old fish. And she would go, old fish. Goes, oh, I'll never get it right. And then another one was we did um, My Fair Grouch, in which Jerry played Professor Piggins. <laughs> and I... <laughs> Yeah. It was <laughs> Eliza Grouch Little. So it was very fun. I had a great hat, wonderful costumes. Uh, Andrea Martin and I played saleswomen in a grouch shoe store. And oh. we sold shoes to the Two-Headed Monster, which ended up being shoe boxes. Of course, because okay. nothing would right. fit them. <laughs> Just give them the shoe boxes. <laughs> yeah, so it was very, very fun, weird stuff like that. You know, there's so many. I yeah. uh, we almost got married. Yeah, we we Oscar and I were going to get married, and then we thought we pulled the plug at the last minute because we thought it might make us happy. And grouches don't want to be happy, but <laughs> little right. did we know, most married people aren't happy. So we probably <laughs> should have done it. Maybe you should have taken the plunge. Yeah, and then we had uh, it had a wonderful fantasy scene of um, having. Grouch babies, which was very interesting <laughs> and weird. I didn't know that. <laughs> Little grouch babies. Oh my god! Horrifying. So lots of lots of fun. We went on vacation to Swamp Mushy Muddy, and we have a whole song that we sang floating down a, a swampy river, which was mm-hmm. quite lovely. Uh, you know, little. Fun. Yeah. <laughs> well, and so you done. got to work a lot with Carol. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Carol. You know, you worked with him for a long time, and you worked mm-hmm. with uh, with with Jerry as well over yeah. those years. Anything, yeah. anything that sticks with you about Carol? Let's start with Carol. Anything about him that sticks with you? You know, Carol was Big Bird and Oscar. I think that is the most delightful thing about Carol. Mm-hmm. And, and you kind of never knew who you were going to get. I mean, there were <laughs> <laughs> days you would walk in and it'd be Big Bird and he'd be so sweet and loving and funny and wonderful. And then there were other days he'd walk in and it was Oscar and me. He was not having any of it and something yeah. horrible had happened. And <laughs> it was, he was going to tell you about it over and over again until we got it out of his system. Yeah. Um, but he was, he was so, when he was on, he was just so 100% there and so authentic. There was yes, absolutely that came from his heart. I always felt that when he was delivering lines and he was just like having a good time, that the way that he would deliver his lines felt so in the moment, so right now and, and very alive to me and authentic, like you said. That's a great word to describe, Carol. And it was so much who he was as that five-year-old child. I, had, yeah. I don't think anyone I've ever met could access that child in himself the way Carol could. Yeah. Carol just went right there. Yeah. And every wonderful, joyful thing and every hurtful, sad thing that ever happened yeah. to that five-year-old Carol was right yeah. there in Big Birds every and single time. That is another thing that we have to be able to do as performers is we have to be able to access those emotions and those memories because we're actors. We are actors exactly. acting parts and we just have you know a big yellow bird on, but that big yellow bird is a character and the character has emotion and feeling and 
And that is only effective if the person that's performing it is able to access emotion and, and bring it out in whatever way, through joy or frustration or right. anxiety, whatever it is. And that's why those characters on Sesame Street are so remarkable to me is that they are very unique. Every one of them, they all experience the same emotions, but in their own unique way. Correct. I think the fact is, too, that we make them very multidimensional and very Mm multi-leveled, which a lot of times you will see a puppet show and people who say, and I I talk with a lot, you know, I I do talks on puppetry all over the world. And a lot of times I'll say, well, I've seen puppet shows and I hate them. And I always say, it's because you've seen a bad puppet show. Yeah, You've seen one where people are just wiggling dollies, which is John Stone's famous (laughs) term for what we do. And if you just wiggle the dolly, nobody cares because just as any other acting role, there has to be that connection to the performer. You have to know that what I'm telling you is real, that Mm -hmm. that it comes from a real place. It might be a big yellow bird. It might be a a green monster, but it came from a real place. That's why we can believe it. Otherwise, Mm -hmm. we're we're just dollies and that's not who we are, you know. And I think that's also why Sesame Street has lasted 50 years. You I know? think so too, yeah. These, these are genuine people who, genuine characters, and, and people want to relate to these characters. They want them as their friends. They want to keep them as part of their heart club, you know? Yeah, r- r- regardless of what age they may be. Right, exactly. You know? I mean, think about that. The first people who watch Sesame Street are now at yeah. least 50. My age, yeah, they're, age, they're, yeah. they're where I am, you know, yeah. or older. And it is remarkable to see the connection that people have with these characters. But that does come from the performer. It really mm-hmm. comes from the performer and, exactly. and, and the writers. And the writers are huge. The workshop that has created these beautiful characters. Yeah. And, you know, so many pieces to put this together. But our part of it, our part of it in there is making sure that they are living, breathing characters, and that comes right. through us. And all that hard work that goes in from the writers, from the sets, from, from the, the costumes and, yeah. and the people who build the puppets, I feel like if you don't do the best performance you can when you walk on that set, with the most skill and the most commitment, you are insulting all of those people. You yeah. are, it's just plain ridiculous to throw away their hard work by not giving the best performance you possibly can. And it did, that certainly doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen the day one when you walk in. It's no. not something that just happens. It takes time and you have it's, to cook for a while. It's horrifying how slow it is, actually. I think people really think, I know how to do this. I can, right. do, I can do Kermit's voice. How many right. times have you heard that? And, <laughs> no, and, they, and, they, and they do a Kermit voice, which yeah. is kind of like a Kermit voice. Sure. But then they think they can just throw the puppet on and walk in front of a camera and make it happen. Right. I mean, there are so many layers to what we do. And, right. and the voice is one of them. Yeah, and it's like one. One of them. <laughs> there are so many. And maybe not even the most important, thing, right. but that's the one people think, you know? Yeah. Um, well, speaking of voice, let's talk about Jerry for a second. Yeah. We all love Jerry. And uh, he created these amazing characters. He did so many kind of one-timey characters that would just come in one right. time and they would and he always brought something unique and truly jerry to those characters do you have any memories of jerry on set or offset uh, yeah. that that you'd like to share well i think um jerry he was he was such a <laughs> 
He used to play a lot of video games in the Muppet Room, actually. Yeah, he did. He used to. Um, I have this Tetris. Really, he played Tetris all the Tetris, time, didn't he? Honestly, yes, and he liked his crossword puzzles. Yeah. Um, and it was like Jerry would be doing this thing that takes his focus and concentration, I think, is part of what that was about. Yeah. Um, and, and when he was performing, again, 100%, the focus he had and the ability to draw on I remember talking to him about how do you get all these characters that seem so different? And he is so, was so observant of people and things. And even he would say, you know, there was some squirrels outside playing and then I just sort of started putting them in my mind about what they might sound like if they were talking to each other. And he says, that's what I brought in. He was so observant of everything. And he was such a smart man. You know, I mean, he was quiet about it, but he was brilliant. Mm-hmm. And then he also had that resonant tone from oh, singing yeah. that 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 voice that nobody Jeez. else no. nobody else carried in, in the company. Nobody had a it's, voice like that. Nobody ever will. It's and an nobody amazing, ever will. And, amazing and voice. He was able to not only sing beautifully with it, but draw on so many different levels of his vocal abilities that just you just could. He'd come in with another, and even his stupid girl voices were hysterical. You know? <laughs> yeah, and always one hundred percent there. Like he would commit. When you're going to bring a character in, you got to commit one hundred percent to it. Yeah, or it, or it, don't wimp out. It falls short, and yeah. nobody likes it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is one thing about our job. I don't think people realize is that when you screw up, you screw up in front of hundreds of people. Yeah, and then. Everybody knows exactly what you did wrong. Yeah. And it's terrifying. It, is, it can be yeah. absolutely terrifying because it you can. really do put your soul out there and then sometimes it's not good. It doesn't matter how much prep you've done and how much you put your heart into this. It's not good. But there are times. Don't you feel like, I mean, I feel like earlier in my journey here in this profession, it was, there was more fear, internalized yeah. fear and anxiety about messing up about trying to be bold but and failing and, yeah. and what if i mess up and how are they going to see me and are they going to invite me back next season and you know and so on and so on and then now 22 years later oh, geez, geez. i feel very confident you know and i'm less scared of failure right i think just, those of us who i consider all of us who came in after the main six or eight right mm-hmm. um we all kind of had that fear coming in. And, and, um, and again, we also, you know, I can't, every year my husband would say, so are you going back next year to Sesame? And I'd go, I don't know. And I wouldn't know until they call me, you know, at the end of the summer, I mean, after maybe eight or nine years, I said, yeah, I think I'll probably be back. But it took eight or nine years of of saying they're not, they are going to call me back. You know, every year was a little bit nerve wracking. You can't perform well when you're afraid. So I think that means that those first eight or nine years are limited and do have a certain tenseness to every character that you do until you feel that sense of comfort, which the first guys all did because they were making it up as they went. It was their show. Right. You know, they weren't (laughs) going to lose anything. So they, so those characters came in feeling freer and those of us who had to learn a character from them or develop new characters had much more sort of a tense startup. I yeah. Think, and you're right. After a certain number of years, you just go, well, they don't like it. Okay. Yeah, I'll do something else. <laughs> <laughs> Next time I'll try again. I'll yeah, do something it, better. Yeah. yeah. I'm afraid, Pam, we're going to have to pause for a moment. We have to ask a puppeteer about 
Not Puppets. Ask the puppeteer about not puppets. Today, we are asking Peter Linz a question about not puppets. Peter, what's your favorite sandwich? Wow. Wow. Well, it's got to be a turkey leftover sandwich. Uh, Describe, please. And this is something you're going to make? Yeah, this is something. Well, this is something I grew up with. And okay. I've never been quite able to replicate it. But my <sighs> father would usually smoke a turkey. And with the leftover turkey, uh, mom used to buy Roman meal bread. I don't even know Roman meal. I don't I even know Roman that. meal bread is yeah, still a thing. I think it is. Slather some mayonnaise on that bad boy and and the smoked turkey. And 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 then the, the top the bread on top also with mayonnaise. This <sighs> is going to gross people out, I know. No, and it sounds and delicious. And I would like swish it together really, really oh. firmly. And, ah, uh, oh, yeah. Sounds good, good. leftover turkey sandwich. So around Thanksgiving time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and, I mean, you know, there's there's variations on a theme. Since I've been an adult, you can add some cranberry sauce and make a little yep. Thanksgiving sandwich. But no, yep. no, no. It was the ones my mom made when I was uh. a kid. That was that was my favorite sandwich. Ask the puppeteer about not puppets. Okay, we are back with Pam Arciero. You also yeah. did a, a bunch of different shows in the 80s and 90s and 2000s. Yeah. Other than Sesame Street, you, yeah. you were part of Great Space Coaster. Correct. That was my first, actually my first television show was Great Space Coaster. Name the people that were on that show too, because I know Kevin Clash was on that show and Jim Martin was on that show. Noel McNeil was on that show. Mm-hmm. Uh, John Lovelady, Noel replaced John Lovelady. John mm-hmm. Lovelady left the show. A man named Frank Kane, who did the big character Baxter, walked mm-hmm. around. And then there was uh, Chris Gifford was one of the humans. <laughs> Believe it or not, he no. was the blonde drummer on the show. Yeah, Emily Bindiger was a singer who was the female on that show, wow. uh, the female character, human character. And I had to look this up because I wasn't sure exactly who you played, but it says here, Huggles. Yes. So there were three characters. <laughs> the pink one is what I, I did find a clip. I found a clip and I think you were the pink one. I was the pink one and the blue one. And the blue one. Uh, yeah, I played two of them <laughs> at the same time. Oh and Kevin God. played the orange one, Scrubby, uh-huh. in the middle. And they continually gave me script after script where I was talking to myself. Oh, my God. <laughs> I was like, please give this line to Scrubby. <laughs> because I can't go on like yeah. this forever, never, never. If you keep doing that to me, I'm going to be in trouble because it's hard to make that jump back and forth and forth yeah. and back. You know, so I was doing those good two acting challenge. <laughs> it was a great acting challenge. Yeah, but an um, annoying one. Annoying. And we only shot, I shot two seasons, three weeks, and we did a whole bunch of shows. But it was three intensive weeks of shooting pretty much eight in the morning till 10 at night, getting all those shows in the can. And it was kind of an interesting show because it was a free show, more or less. Um, Hasbro funded the show hmm. and they would give it to different television shows throughout the country, syndicated shows uh-huh. for free if they would run a Hasbro commercial. Really? Yeah. So it was a really interesting process back then. It's just one of those things that those uh-huh. of us in the business, yeah, obviously doesn't, doesn't happen anymore yeah. at all. But no. that was the way the show got around. I loved the Great Space Coaster when I was a kid. That show... Um, had amazing guest stars for some reason. Kathleen Turner had just done Body Heat, and then she comes on and does a song with us. We, well. I was like, what is this hot woman <laughs> doing on this kid's show? 
it was just, it was amazing the, the guest stars they had. But one of their guest stars was Steve Allen, the great Steve oh, Allen. really? And we, he had his grand piano on and the Huggles were under the, we were under the piano and Huggles coming up over the edge. So he's playing music and we're waiting for some lighting cue or something. And he's playing and playing. And Emily Bindiger, the lovely human character, was standing there talking to him about stuff. And I'm under the piano. And they're talking about puppets and performance and stuff like that. And Emily says, yeah, the puppets have been great. And I performed, blah, blah, blah. And he goes, well, you don't perform as a puppeteer, do you? You're far too pretty to be a puppeteer. <laughs> so I crawl out from under the piano and I look at him and go, oh, I see. <laughs> <laughs> and he goes, no, no, I didn't mean you. I didn't mean you. I didn't. He said, I didn't mean that you weren't pretty. He got very frustrated. Oh. But so that's my claim to fame is that Steve Allen insulted me under the <laughs> Oh, boy. You did uh, Eureka's Castle. Eureka's Castle, again, with Noel McNeil and Cheryl mm-hmm. Blaylock and Jim Krupa, the fabulous Jim Krupa. Oh, Jim Krupa. And yeah. did that same group or most of that group go on to do Allegra's Window? No. Allegra's Window was Marty Robinson and Marty. Anthony Asbury and uh, Kathy Mullen. So it was a slightly different group. Slightly different group. Uh, Krupa was not on that group. So the Krupa, Noel group is a slightly different grouping of puppeteers and, uh-huh. and went on to... And there was Heather Ash and Tim Legas were also on uh, Lego's oh. Window. Great Space Coaster was New York. New York. But the others, were those Orlando shows? Half and half. Eureka's Castle, we shot the first two seasons in New York. And then the second two seasons were at Nickelodeon Studios in Orlando. Mm. Um, and in fact, we were there for the opening of Nickelodeon Studios. I think we were one of the first shows or the first show shot at Nickelodeon Studios in Orlando. Um, and they had a big dedication of the slime fountain, which was this huge deal at the, <laughs> the big slime That's fountain. A, everybody wanted to be there. Everybody wanted to get slime. My kids got to get slimed because oh, of wow. that. It was like, you know, the be all and end all of their lives. But my favorite thing about the dedication of the slime fountain was that the big star we had was the professor from Gilligan's Island. <laughs> oh. The big star who helped really? us launch the, yeah. It was like, That's we were like cool. such geeks. Yeah, and uh, you did Between the Lions. I did Between the Lions. You took um, over for Kathy Mullen. You did. You did yes. Leona. Were you on the show before that? Yes, I was you, on you as a background. Things. I was just doing yeah. a lot of background, smaller characters, and different things. I didn't have a main character, but for various yeah. reasons, Kathy no longer wanted to play Leona, and mm-hmm. um, it was an interesting process for me because I uh, wanted to make sure Kathy was okay with me being Leona. That was a huge deal for me. Right. And we want. I didn't. You know, that was a legacy character for her. She really worked hard on that character. And and for various reasons, when she chose to leave the character behind, I didn't want to be doing the character if she didn't, wasn't okay with it. I didn't, I didn't, I just wanted her to approve of it. So they offered me the job. Interestingly, I went in and auditioned and I, I kind of knew what was going on, but I couldn't quite tell. And so then before I, it was one of those jobs audition one of those auditions that just go incredibly well and i think that's the only one i've ever had but um, (laughs) (laughs) but um they called me before i was even in the elevator to tell me that they wanted me yeah oh my gosh i mean because well they had to go in studio monday and this was like a thursday oh great so they were they were hustling it and so they called me in the elevator by the time i walked out on the street they were asking me if i would do it and i said i will do it but i have to ask kathy so then I went over to see Kathy and say, I just have to know you're okay with me taking this character over because I can't yeah. do it if you're not. And she said, oh, no, no, I think that's a good choice. So 
What do you think is uh, important in taking over a character from someone? I think you have to know the essence of the character and you have to be true to that. Mm-hmm. Whatever that previous performer established as the core systems and values of that character, you mm-hmm. have to be true to that. And you have to find that. It's not that you can't change it a little and have it become more who you are, but you do have to key into what that specific center that's that what makes that character happy, what makes that character sad has already been established by yeah. the previous person. So you have to know and you have to feel that inside of you. You have to find that part of you that's similar to the previous performer, but somehow yours as well, right. making that real. And it is a really challenging thing to do, to do mm-hmm. it um, truthfully to the character as it was established and truthfully to yourself, authentically to yourself. How do you make that transition? Yeah, it's harder than creating your own character out of nothing. Right. You know, because you can make all the choices. You get to make all the choices. Right. And you can't do that with with taking someone else's character. You have to think about how they, they've already made that choice, maybe, that you're having to make. So you have to, you also have to study them. And I do think that's huge. You have to really study who they, what they've done before. And I think Leona, I played Leona maybe eight seasons. I mean, we did a lot of seasons. Um, Kathy did maybe the same number of shows because they did so many shows. They did like 50 shows in the first season, Mm -hmm. another 20. But then I did like eight seasons of 10 or 12 shows. So so it was like the same, same. similar amount. But I did enjoy playing Leona just tremendously. She was just such a joy, such a fun, strange, smart little character. Mm -hmm. Um, And that was a really great family. That, that, the family that was with, you know, Anthony and, and uh, Jen Barnhart and mm-hmm. Peter Lintz and right. uh, myself. We were just, we had such a good time being a family. Because we were, we were the family alliance. Yeah. We had a good time being a family and we shot a lot of that in Mississippi. We were out of town together. And as you know, when you shoot out of town, it, the bonds that form between the people, I mean, because you're not only are we playing a family, but we are the family. In yeah. Town. The rest of your family's not there. <laughs> yeah. You know? They're your family. Um, yeah. And it, it was a very special time. And I love Join Between the Lines. I think that next to Sesame, it's one of the best shows that have, have ever been on for children. That oh, was a great um, show. Uh, and especially, you know, it's the kind of show that has proof that it got kids to read books and had all the research behind it, much like Sesame. It was very Sesame based. And and we really touched a lot of kids in terms of reading. And that was super important to me. Yeah. Because that's huge. So I want to talk about the O'Neill, the puppetry oh. conference that you are the artistic <laughs> director of and yes. have been since... Me, I've been doing it for 18 years. Yeah. First of all, can you tell people that maybe they don't know, what is the O'Neill Puppetry Conference? Okay, so the O'Neill Puppetry Conference is part of the O'Neill Theater Center, and the O'Neill Theater Center's mission is to develop new works of theater, basically. They have a playwrights conference where they develop new plays. They have a musical conference where they develop new musicals. They have a cabaret conference where they develop new cabaret acts. Mm. They have a critics conference where they help train critics to critique well theater pieces. So it's, we are the puppetry conference as part of that family of conferences. And our mission is to help create new works of puppet theater as well as nurture puppeteers because, again, what we do is so complicated. So we bring in artists who, sh- who want to come and develop a new piece 
and share their techniques and thinking about puppetry, how they do a puppet show, how do they create puppet art. And this is not just, you know, a Muppet-style puppetry alone. There, Every style of puppetry that you can think of, you will find at the puppetry conference. Correct. It was started by Jane Henson right after Jim passed away. Jane and a, a group of other people, uh, Margot Rose, who was the mother of Howdy Doody, basically she built and designed Howdy Doody. Bart Rockaburton, who was running the National Puppetry Institute then, which was a, a theater school at the O'Neill. Um, Richard Termini, who was the first artistic director, along with George Latshaw, who's a very well-known puppeteer, no longer with us. But So it came out of sort of the general puppet community, not necessarily out of the Muppet community. And Jane wanted it to be, not necessarily be anything to do with the Muppets. However, Marty Robinson, myself, and Kathy Mullen were the first guest artists who did teach Muppet technique that first year, 30 years ago. And amongst our students were Peter Lintz, Heather Ash, Tim Lagasse, Mark Gale. I mean, that first year, wow. we were teaching sort of a lot of the people who are now the second generation of puppeteers. Right. And they were all there. And then um, Richard Termini, Jan Rosenthal, Stapura, who is no longer with us, and Peter McKinnon were teaching building at the same time. So they mm. got the afternoon with us, afternoon and evening with us teaching uh, manipulation and the mornings were with the building group and they were building muppets at the same time. It was a very exciting first year, but after that first year, Jane did not want any, any muppets. So we do um, a video section we call video anarchy, which is usually anything but muppet style puppets. And mm -hmm. um, that's led usually by Tim Lagasse and, and Marty Robinson. Um, and they create a, a film or they or right. several films? Does it depend on... Uh, they create a two or three minute film because a lot of it is not only about they create, the, they shoot the film and then they learn how to edit the film and put uh -huh. it together. So that, it does take time. I and mean, They only have five days. So they... Sometimes they're building the puppets too. So they get out. Usually um, we call it too short to suck um, <laughs> to the film. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, that's two to, at most three minutes. I don't think we've gotten much over three minute films. Yeah. If uh, somebody's interested in, in going to the O'Neill Puppetry Conference, what do they have to do? Can anybody go? No, you have to apply. Um, we have a fairly complicated application process. You go to theoneill.org and you'll see the information. Generally, we want to know why you want to be a puppeteer and how you feel about puppetry. So, so it's not just, you can't just kind of walk in off the street and become part of this conference because it is more for professional puppeteers really is what it is for. And since that first one, we have expanded greatly. A lot of it is international. I'm very much about bringing international puppet forms to the United States. I think that there's so much out there that we don't see here. But we've had artists who come and share what they want to do from Australia, from wow. South Africa, from England, from France, from Germany, from all over the world. I try to go to a lot of events and see who I think is the best cutting edge artists mm -hmm. out there. And I bring them over to teach for us so that we get that wow. exposure here in the United States. Um, and generally speaking, each strand will only have 10 to 12 people. So it, it is a limited number of people. Very small. So how many would be there in, uh, you know, in one? total, about yeah. 60, 60 participants and maybe 30 to 40 staff members because we have a lot of staff. Um, and you can take a class in marionette performance or marionette building. They're two different ones. And generally we'll have, usually I'll have like a shadow puppet class uh, someone who comes in specializing in shadows or rod puppets or, you know, their, whatever form they're deciding they want to teach. Uh, hand puppets. The broad range of puppetry is represented at the O'Neill. 
It must we feel like, like such a vibrant, creative atmosphere for those few weeks. It is. It is. And it's, it's Brigadoon because it appears and then it disappears. <laughs> it's gone. It's gone. <laughs> and it is. It's that community again. We're all about, puppeteers tend to be about community and family because we are so odd. And particularly when you're a puppeteer not working with a large group the way we do, you know, you're so isolated and out there working by yourself and you go to a school and set up and do your puppet show and then leave kind of thing. Yeah. Or you do a show in a theater and then it's gone. It's only two or three of you that the O'Neill becomes this wonderful place of community for um, our puppeteers. And, and we like, I like to think of it as a place that is very nurturing. The O'Neill, the National Theater Institute that exists at the O'Neill and the, and the motto of the O'Neill is risk, fail, risk again. So we like to give people the chance to do anything they want, any idea you can bring into me. We'll try and figure out how to put it on its feet. Mm-hmm. And if it fails, it fails and we'll try again. And that's what we're doing in terms of creating new art out there. It sounds like a very validating experience to come in with an idea and try to work on it with other like-minded artists. Yeah, I mean, that's really our whole intention is just to let artists find their voices, however that may be. Mm -hmm. Get puppet artists able to express and move forward on an idea they've had or what they're trying to say to the world. All of us are here, and particularly those of us performers, we, want, we have something to say. We want the world to know something, whatever it is. So how do you say that? How do you get that out? Maybe it is from a grouchy character who's yelling at people <laughs> to tell the truth or yeah. you know, that to let everybody have their own point of view, which is really ultimately grunge of this thing, is that mm-hmm. grouchy people are just as valid as happy singing don- you know, people. But whatever that voice is, how do you find that voice? How do you find what you want to say? And then how do you say it? I mean, and Mm. that's where we're coming from with the O'Neill. We want Mm. you to get that voice out there in the world and to feel like your time on earth has made a difference to yourself, if nothing else. Sounds big. It's a little big. It is. Do you love doing it? Do you love? I love doing it. I have loved doing this for the last 18 years as artistic director. Before that, I was the director of a thing called the Emerging Artists, which were second level puppeteers who come in and work on a special thing. So I've been, I've been with it for 30 years. This is our 30th year. And we are actually doing it virtually this year. I was going to ask, how are, you, how are you accomplishing it this year? Yeah, it was heartbreaking. It was heartbreaking okay. to not be able to do it. So we're doing a, a five-day version. Normally, it's roughly 12 days because um, there's a small conference and then the big conference is nine days. And so we're doing a five-day virtual where people who applied got in. And I really couldn't have done it without Jean Marie Kevins. Um, she is my right hand. She's my associate artistic director. And then also uh, Preston Whiteway and Chandler Smith, who are the people at the O'Neill. And the O'Neill is providing all of the uh, technical support, which makes it so much easier for me. And I have to say, you know, creating things online is so much harder than doing it. (laughs) (laughs) I know. It's It's so much more complicated. It's it's a challenge. It's a challenge. I mean, we're getting it, but gosh. Uh, Okay, Pam, I'm going to give you some quick questions, rapid fire questions now. Okay. And um, just whatever comes to the top of your head, no judgment. Here we go. Are you ready? Sure. What is the hardest part about being a puppeteer? Uh, Probably crouching on the floor with your arm over your head. I mean, it just, it's it's hard. It's it's physically hard work. It is physically hard work. Don't, you know, it's, it's fun. And that fortunately, because I come from dance, I think it's been better for me, but it is physically challenging work. What's the easiest part about being a puppeteer? 
Oh, being with other puppeteers, I think, <laughs> and actually having the joy of creating scenes together. That's once you're on a roll, once it's really happening, oh God, it is heaven and it's yeah. fun and it's easy. What's your biggest strength as a puppeteer or a performer? Oh, that's interesting. Strength. When I hook my character, there I am not present anymore. And that, if you can do that, it's, um, and Fran Brill said this to me. Fran Brill said, you know, you just sort of channel them from somewhere else. Yeah. And you can actually channel that character. It's cool. How about your biggest weakness as a puppeteer? Probably the same thing. Oh, that's pretty <laughs> good. Right? That's good. Yeah, you yeah. Know, not being able to channel. Yeah. There are times Absolutely. when it, nothing comes in and the pup, the character is horrible and I'm crying inside trying, just can, trying to get through the shot. <laughs> that's also, you know, that's the same thing. It's one yeah. and the same. Yeah. Uh, if you weren't a puppeteer, what would be your career? Well, when I took the test in high school, I was supposed to be a mortician. So, <laughs> so I can't imagine Seriously? that. Seriously? How does that out as being a thing? That that's one of the choices. I don't know. It was like, what? I mean, because <laughs> it's something about the way you deal with people and the, okay. about, you know, I, I don't know. It was just very well, That's accurate. a good thing or a bad thing, though. <laughs> All right. Here's and I, the next one. I don't think I would have been that. No, no. <laughs> uh, there are probably people listening. They want to hear you tell them what they have to do to become a Sesame Street Muppet performer. So what would that be? That would be learn to sing, learn to act, learn to move, and then pick up a puppet and work really hard in front of a camera with a puppet. That's yeah. how you would get here. There you go. But- Our buddy, Jerry Nelson said to me a long time ago, he said, Sesame Street's great, but you always have to have something that is your own, that you create. Mm-hmm. So Pam, what is that for you, do you think? I would have to be the own you. I mean, that is really, and I knew that when I, when I took it on. It's my legacy. It's my thing. It's my heart. It's my way of helping other puppeteers become better puppeteers, become more authentic puppeteers. And I try to give them what I want to give to me in order to continue on. And that, I think that is my heart. I think that is the other, my outside thing, you know? I love it. I love it. Pam, thank you so much for talking with me today. Oh, thank you, Matt. Great questions. Thank you. Such a lovely person, that Pam Arciero. Well, that's Below the Frame. Check us out on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Our show today was produced by me. Our theme song was written by Stephanie DeBruzzo and performed by The Mighty Weaklings. Our podcast artwork was created by Dave Holteen at DaveHolteenDesign.com. A word from our sponsor players today were Tal Bennett, who wrote the spot, Austin Costello, and Martin P. Robinson. Thanks to Pam Arciero, Peter Linz, and Martin P. Robinson for being a part of this episode. And thank you to you, the fans, for listening. I am Matt Vogel, and we will see you the next time when we go Below the Frame. Bye-bye. Come in. Dad, did I miss it? Uh, yeah, Jack, it's over. Ah, okay. Next time. (laughs) Next time. Thanks, Jack.